1: Welcome to the Dennis Prager Show. I'm John Hinderrocker from Powerline, filling in for Dennis today. I'm coming to you from Minnesota, and if you have been following the news at all, you know what the big story in Minnesota is these days. It is the trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin for the alleged murder of George Floyd. And that trial has been dominating the news uh, here in Minnesota, and it's been obviously a big story in the news around the country. I'm planning on spending the entire first hour of the show today talking about the trial. I've got a guest coming on in a little while. We'll, we'll uh, talk about it and uh, also take your calls, get your thoughts on what's going on with this, um, this trial, which some view is kind of a world historical event. And I want to start by just kind of painting the scene for you of what's going on here in Minnesota and specifically in the city of Minneapolis because this trial of former police officer Derek Chauvin uh, really does have some some extraordinary elements. And I think the first of those is that I'm not sure there has ever been a criminal defendant who has had the power of the state a raid against him in the way that Derek Chauvin does. He has already been tried and convicted, not only in the press, but by senior government officials in the city and the state. Governor Tim Walls, a, a left wing Democrat, has already has already publicly pronounced Derek Chauvin a murderer. That's the word he used, murder. And that same sentiment has been echoed all up and down uh, among public officials. The day after George Floyd died, the mayor of Minneapolis, Jacob Fry, publicly said that he didn't understand why those police officers were still on the loose. Why aren't they in jail? They should have been arrested by now. And so, and so public officials have really led the lynch mob Against Derek Chauvin and these other officers, uh, really from from the day that this incident occurred, way back in uh, in May of uh, of 2020, and the press, of course, has enthusiastically joined in. Derek Chauvin has got a very substantial defense here. His defense is that he didn't kill George Floyd at all, not on purpose, not negligently, not at all that what happened was that George Floyd had ingested a fatal overdose of fentanyl, along with some other drugs, and that uh, that killed him. And there's a lot of evidence uh, to support that. But you could you could scour the local newspapers and watch local TV shows in vain to get any understanding of of what Derek Chauvin's defense is or why it is that he may, in fact, not be guilty at all, and in fact, the local newspapers, who of course are which are, are, are full of stories about this about this case and the and this trial, uh, say about three or four times a day that Derek Chauvin killed uh, George Floyd, or or that George Floyd was killed by uh, Minneapolis police officers, and they think they're being neutral because they say killed instead of murdered, leaving open the possibility. I guess that it could only be. Uh, only manslaughter and not, and not second or third degree murder. So, so that, that in very, very broad terms is the landscape. And by the way, uh, Derek Chauvin is standing trial alone currently. Uh, we're in the midst of jury selection. The other three police officers are going to be tried together, but not until later this summer. So it's, it's Derek Chauvin standing all alone against the power of the state. And the power of the state in this case is, is really immense. Um, the, the prosecution early on was taken over by Attorney General Keith Ellison, another far leftist. And, and so Keith Ellison is actually in the courtroom uh, every day, as far as I can see, observing jury selection. There's an assistant attorney general who I believe is going to be leading the team at trial and others from the attorney general's office. And that team is supplemented by volunteer lawyers. It's a kind of a dream team for the prosecution, volunteer lawyers, some from uh, Minneapolis or or Twin Cities law firms, at least one, a former official in Barack Obama's uh, Department of Justice. So there's this entire array of legal talent trying to secure a conviction for murder against Derek Chauvin. Of course they're accompanied by a a jury consultant and the usual entourage that uh, goes with a with a highly publicized trial. That's for the prosecution. Derek Chauvin on the other hand is represented by a single lawyer, a single man, a criminal defense lawyer named uh, Eric Nelson. If there has ever been a David versus Goliath uh, story in a courtroom, this is it. And Eric nelson is uh, is david and and the state of Minnesota, aided by some some former federal officials too is uh, is Goliath and so and so that 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 is one aspect of uh, of of how this this trial is shaping up, and by the way, they are now in the second full week of jury selection. They have so far seated nine jurors, and they have five to go—twelve jurors and two uh, two alternates—and they've got the rest of this week and next week set aside to try to complete uh, jury selection. And um, and they are they are uh, conducting the trial. The, the trial proper will start finally when when the three weeks of jury selection are done, or however long it takes. And the trial is being conducted uh, in downtown Minneapolis at the Hennepin County Government Center, a building where I, in my earlier days, tried any number of, of jury cases. And But it looks different now. It looks different from from how it looked when, uh, when I was there because it is now surrounded by concrete barriers and barbed wire and all business in the Hennepin County Government Center, which is a, a, a kind of a... A dual building with an atrium in the middle, uh, a, a courts tower on one side, a, a government administration tower on the other side. That is, I think it's 24 or 25 stories high. So it's a, it's a good-sized building. But all business has now been shut down at the government center. The only thing going on is the trial of George Floyd, and you can imagine how spooky it must be to be a prospective juror and to be called into this. This, this, this tomb-like environment surrounded by concrete and barbed wire, and of course, fully understanding what the concrete and the barbed wire are there for, because after the George Floyd incident occurred in May of 2020, at the end of that month, what happened, everybody knows, uh, was a series of riots, in, uh, primarily in Minneapolis, also in, in St. Paul and a few other areas, but a two-mile stretch of Lake Street, which is a, a, a major street in, in the south part of the city of Minneapolis, was completely destroyed. Every building burned. Six-story apartment building burned to the ground. the The city of Minneapolis was unable to protect the third precinct station house, which is located in this area, the Minneapolis Police Department was ordered to abandon its own th- Third Precinct Station House to the rioters. They took it over and burned it. Uh, they burned two miles of Lake Street to the ground, along with other parts of, of Minneapolis and and certain other areas around the uh, around the Twin Cities. And and so and so everybody understands that the reason for the concrete and the reason for the. Barbed wire is that if the jury doesn't return the right verdict, if it doesn't convict Derek Chauvin, in fact, probably if it doesn't convict him of murder, not just manslaughter, there's going to be more riots. The city's going to burn. And this is one of the reasons why the the uh, local government, from, from the governor on down, is determined to see Chauvin uh, convicted. They they do not want to take the risk of what will happen if the jury should, against all the odds, return a verdict of not guilty. Now, of course, the prospective jurors know all this, and when they are brought in, you know, their anonymity, uh, it, they're, they're trying to protect it, uh, they're brought in, they fully understand that part of what's going on here is that is that if they don't convict Derek Chauvin, uh, everybody thinks there's going to be massive, massive uh, riots. And, and you have to think that a lot of prospective jurors are thinking, if, 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 the, if the city of Minneapolis couldn't protect its own third precinct station house, how is it going to protect my house if I don't return the verdict that the mob wants? that is the situation we are facing here in minnesota we're going to be right back with howard rut after these messages Welcome back to the Dennis Prager Show. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dennis today. We are already getting calls, and I haven't even put out the number yet. If you want to weigh in on the Derek Chauvin trial, you can call us at 1-8-Prager-776. That is 1-877-243-777. Six, if you're holding, keep holding. We'll get to you before too long. We are joined now by Howard Root. Howard is a retired pharmaceutical company a CEO. And Howard has some valuable experience here because he was outrageously and unjustly prosecuted by the Obama Department of Justice. He had to take his case all the way to a, a jury, which not only acquitted him, but resoundingly vindicated him and howard has written a book about that experience it's called cardiac arrest you can get it at amazon i highly recommend it it is a tremendous book about what it's like to feel the entire pressure of the the entire weight of the state pressing down upon you howard thanks for being on the program
3: good morning john and uh, thanks for inviting me on
1: Howard, one thing that I I didn't get to before the break, I was kind of setting the stage, describing the atmosphere here in Minnesota and some of the background on this trial. But something happened earlier this week that is just unbelievable to me. And and that is that uh, earlier in the week, Monday or Tuesday, the city of Minneapolis held a press conference and announced that it had settled the wrongful death case brought by uh, George Floyd's heirs for Twenty seven million dollars. Uh, Howard, can you think of any reason why they would do that other than as a further attempt to poison the jury pool?
3: Well, I think you're right. I mean, you know, you know my perspective, as you mentioned, I was a criminal defendant. But as opposed to Derek Chauvin, who is one of the most unfortunate Criminal defendants in America, because of his lack of resources and all of the weight of the state against him, I was one of the most fortunate. I mean, I was a CEO of a public company, and I had the ability to hire over a hundred lawyers and spend twenty-five million dollars in my defense to go all the way through trial. And at the end, we got to the trial, and the whole entire case blew up, and the jury came back not guilty. It was a it was a, a weird process of uh, prosecutors believing a disgruntled former employee and not going away, but. In Derek Chauvin's case, he's got the power of the state as well. And even in my fortunate example, I had prejudicial pretrial publicity from the Department of Justice and from the FDA saying that I was guilty before I was even in court, you know, innocent until proven guilty. But they did a three page press release. And at the end, they just say that. But the three pages before that says all the bad things that you think you've done. So this is the M.O. for the government when they go after a criminal defendant mainly because they want the person to crumble and collapse, but also because they want to win. And this one is is such a clear example, because two years ago, you know, we had this case in Minnesota, again, that uh, Officer Noor, a police officer who shot Justine Damon, and that went to trial, and they had a settlement on the civil case as well, but they waited to announce that civil settlement the day after the verdict came in, in the criminal conviction in Officer Noor. In this case, Mayor Fry and the city council does a bombastic press conference in the middle of jury selection when all the jurors are there. And just to prove the point, they brought the seven jurors back that had already been selected and re-interviewed them, did re Dear, Two of them, or nine of them they brought back in. Two of them they cut off because they had seen the settlement and they said, I can't be impartial anymore. If the city pays $27 million for this act, the guy must be guilty. So the challenge of getting a fair trial in this case with so much prejudicial publicity is almost unheard of.
1: And of course, Howard, the judge interviewed the nine jurors who had already been seated, and two of them acknowledged that the settlement put them over the edge that it just made it obvious to them, Chauvin must be guilty. But what about the other seven? You know, they're still on the jury, but I I think it's reasonable to assume that anybody who knows about the settlement, and they all do, uh, it's it's hard not to view it that way. And and, and when you put... Yeah, go ahead.
3: Yeah, yeah, let's be honest. The, the worst person to determine whether you can be impartial or not is you. And if you say, oh, I can be impartial, I don't know if you understand your own misgivings, your own prejudices, and that type of information. So they really have to delve in deeper. Now, yeah, I mean, you were a litigator. I was a lawyer way back when. I wasn't a litigator. But, you know, when you pick a jury and they do voir dire, they ask, do you know the defendant or the victim? And if you say yes, you get excluded. Well, in this case, everyone would get excluded because everyone knows the name George Floyd and almost everyone knows Derek Chauvin. Then they would ask, so they they can't exclude all jurors because of that. But now they ask, do you have a negative connotation about either the defendant or the victim? And, of course, they have that as well. Now, in a normal case, that would be cause for strike. Now they have to go down to ask this question. In spite of what you've heard, in spite of what you believe, can you put that all aside and listen to only the evidence in the courtroom and make an impartial verdict on whether he's guilty or innocent beyond a reasonable doubt. That is a Herculean task, and the people who say they can, I think, are just really deluding themselves in a lot of cases.
1: Well, I think in some cases there are people who want to get on the jury and know that's the way to get on the jury. You know, and and whether, they, whether they actually are harboring a, you know, a determination to get uh, Derek Chauvin, the former police officer, who knows?
3: Absolutely. I've seen that. I've been watching a lot of the jury selection. I mean, on the one positive side, the judge in this case, Peter Cahill, is doing a phenomenal job. First, his decision to allow cameras in the courtroom so we can all see what's going on was important because otherwise it'd be cloaked in secrecy. Then the way he acts in front of the camera, I would say he's the anti-Judge Ito. Remember Judge Ito from the O.J. Simpson trial, the most dangerous place in his courtroom, was to be between Judge Ito and the camera, because he wanted to ham it up whenever the camera was on him. Here, Peter Cahill is doing a phenomenal job of conducting a normal criminal trial as much as he can, and and doing it the right way. So that's all going well. But these jurors who say, I can be fair, in a lot of cases, I think they're saying, I want to be on this jury because I want to convict Eric Chauvin of the murder that I already know he committed.
1: So the question that kind of hangs over this whole situation, Howard, in, in my view, is, is there any possibility that Derek Chauvin can get a fair trial, given the pretrial publicity, given the statements of public officials, given the the threats of mob violence uh, in the air, given that $27 million settlement, given the, you know, the bunker atmosphere at the government center? Is there any way that that can add up to a fair trial? It's
3: It's. So difficult to believe this is going to turn out in terms of justice. I mean, you start off over 300 potential jurors filled out questionnaires. They've gone through 90 jurors so far, 90. 90 jurors. They've selected nine. So only one out of 10 potential jurors that they interview are able to even claim that they can be impartial and not be stricken by the prosecution or the defense. Now, of those people. How many of those really harbor other kinds of prejudicial thoughts of what's gone on in this case? And again, if you have only one of those, it's got to be unanimous verdict. So in terms of him getting a not guilty, I think it's almost impossible. A hung jury might be possible, but that means he just have to do it again. And keep in mind, he's going to have a federal lawsuit right behind this. Uh, the Department of Justice has already said, so this man is the most wanted man in America
1: we got to run to a hard break, uh, but we're going to be right back with your calls after these messages.
2: The Dennis Prager Show.
1: Welcome back to the Dennis Prager Show. We're talking with Howard Root, and we are taking your calls on the uh, Derek Chauvin murder trial. Let's go to Gary in Valencia, California, on Line 3. Gary, you are on the Dennis Prager Show.
4: Thank you. Uh, good morning, Uh this is a kangaroo court. Like you said, uh, even before the settlement, uh, there should have been a change of venue. I don't know how your guests can comment, the the trial judge, if he hasn't granted a a change of venue before the settlement was announced. And then when the settlement was announced, it's simply impossible for him to get a fair trial. In fact, the attorney for the uh, George Floyd family is Benjamin Crump, and he was the attorney for the Trayvon Martin family, and he's the one that conjured up a false witness in that
0: case.
1: All right, that, uh, Gary, thanks for, that. Right Gary thanks, thanks for that call, but I want, to, I want to bounce that question to Howard Rutt. Howard, what do you think of the, of the idea of the defense getting a, a change of venue here?
3: Well, they, they did bring motions for a change of venue, and they renewed that motion, and they also brought a motion for a continuance. To delay this trial, and those both will be decided by Judge Cahill tomorrow morning. uh... But everyone looking at it is almost certain that he's not going to grant it. Now, the, the problem with the change of venue is it's a Minnesota state case, and so it has to be in Minnesota. And although Minnesota is not a small state, everyone in the state has heard about it. So you have the same prejudicial publicity everywhere, and he's, he's agonized over this about whether if he moves it to Duluth or Rochester, Minnesota, would it would it make any difference? And while it might, it wouldn't guarantee it because this publicity has gone statewide. In far of a continu- as far as the continuance goes, he certainly could do that, but then he'd have to start all over again. And there are so many political and social things that are considerations in this trial, which should not be in a trial of justice. But it's, now it's inevitable. Judge Cahill's in a horrible situation. He's trying to make the best of it, but it's compounded by what the city of Minneapolis has done. These statements are just out of control. If a private litigant had done this, the judge would be down on them like a ton of bricks, but he let them go. The judge only said he was disappointed with the announcement of the $27 million settlement. I was a little bit more than disappointed. I was outraged, I would say.
1: You know, the other issue with the, with a change of venue, if that motion were to be granted, is that in greater Minnesota, I don't know if you could get a, a, a less contaminated jury pool, but you would have a whiter uh, jury pool than Minneapolis in all probability. And, of course, that would be a source of enormous controversy in the event of, uh, of a not guilty verdict. Let's go next to uh, Conrad in Minneapolis on line one. Conrad, welcome to the Dennis Prager so, Show.
0: So I'm on a uh, Bluetooth in my car. Can you hear me okay or should I? Uh, no, you're good.
1: Go ahead. Go ahead.
0: So I'm a Minneapolitan. I lived here all my life. I was born in North Minneapolis. I'm 62. And I drive Uber for a living at this stage of my life after a career as a salesman. I've been all over this town my whole life. And I just want to clarify a couple of things at the opening. I want to make sure that the country knows exactly what's going on up here. The city did not burn Lake Street down completely. What we had when we had the, the riots in the beginning was localized destruction in a couple of key areas. And then there was pockets of both absolute burning down of, say, a gas stations, a lot of service stations, a lot of convenience stores were hit sort of in south minneapolis area some even in north minneapolis but the real concentration of burnt buildings happened as pockets but you can drive around the city today and the city is functional uh... we do have the george floyd memorial zone which is now you know sort of a no-go zone for about four square blocks you can't get into it and you have to turn and redirect yourself if you're trying to come up chicago or down 38th and work around it um... There's just a different vibe in the city, but the city, Lake Street did not get burned. Lake Street is a very long street. It runs, it traverses the entire city and then continues on into St. Paul as Marshall Avenue. So it's an east-west street that never touches downtown. It's a commercial street like many cities have. And, you know, fortunately, it's eventually been rebuilding. But it did not get burned completely. I just want to make that clear. One other thought I have is that it's not really about the trial of Derek Chauvin anymore, it's about holding a gun to the city of Minneapolis and I don't see how any juror could conceivably find him not guilty not knowing that they're committing the city, and not just our city they could hold this this trial anywhere in the world, and if the wrong result occurs to the people who want a certain outcome, they're going to destroy not just here, it's, it's, there's a the gun to the world. Conrad,
1: Conrad we got to move on, but thank you for that call um we only have 30 seconds before a hard break. Let's go to John in Circle Pines real quick. John, um, we're, we're we're up against a hard break here. Uh, we're going to bring you on right after this uh, commercial break. And anybody else that wants to get on the air, 1-8-Prager-776 is the number to call. We'll be right back. The Dennis
2: Prager Show. Let there be no doubt big tech and the far left have joined forces to purge America of conservative views. So why exactly are we choosing to give big tech companies all of our personal data? The battle lines have been drawn, big tech has made it clear which side they're on. Now is the time to take a stance. Protect your personal data from big tech with the VPN I trust for my online protection Express VPN. Every device, whether you're on your phone, laptop or TV, has a unique string of numbers called an IP address. When you search Search for things, watch videos, or even click a link. Big tech companies can use that IP to track your activity and tie it back to you. So stop handing over your data to big tech companies whose aim is to censor you and spy on you. Defend your rights and protect your internet activity with the VPN I use. Visit ExpressVPN.com-Prager, expressvpncom prager expressvpncom Prager to get three extra months free ExpressVPN.com Prager.
1: Welcome back. I'm John Hinderocker from Powerline filling in for Dennis today. And we are talking with uh, Howard Root, author of the book Cardiac Arrest, a terrific book, which you can get at Amazon. And we are taking your calls. If you have a question or want to be heard on the uh, Derek Chauvin uh, trial, give us a call, 1-8-Prager-776. That is 1-877-243-7776. Let's go now to uh, Matt in Pennsylvania on line five. Matt, you're on the air.
5: Hi, good day to you. Um, This is the reason why the Bill of Rights um, are a right and not suggestions, because the Sixth Amendment states that the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial. And the longer you have this time period of the uh, media to slander and create all this animosity towards the person being tried, you end up with a situation we have now.
1: Well, maybe Matt. I mean, if, if the trial had been held, you know, last summer, I, I what do you think Howard? I mean, could, could Derek Chauvin have gotten any more fair trial last summer than he could get, uh, uh than he could get now? I doubt it. Well, it, it's,
3: it's a great point. There, I mean, the speedy trial act is meaningless. No one gets a speedy trial. I mean, 60 days after your indictment, I think you're supposed to be starting your court case. And, and the government comes up with ways that doesn't happen. I tried to do that in my case. There was no way we could do it. But it wouldn't have mattered in this case because the, the government can do its prejudicial publicity in a minute. And it doesn't matter if the trial is the next week or if it's a year later. There's still going to be that lingering effect. And actually, right now, for him to get better justice or even a semblance of justice, we should delay the trial for a year. But I don't think that's going to happen. But that would be a way for people to forget about it, figure out where to hold this and try to get jurors who don't have a preconceived notion of his guilt.
1: Yeah, one of the issues, it seems to me, Howard, is that there has been an enormous amount of, of publicity about the state's case against Derek Chauvin, no publicity about his defense. I mean, how many people understand the drug overdose that I I, I think in all likelihood uh, killed George Floyd? And likewise, one I have not watched as much of the jury selection as you have, Howard, but the portions that I've watched, it's really interesting because everybody has seen the seven-minute video that was filmed by a passerby, which is the one toward the end of which uh, George Floyd dies and it's very powerful you know if, if that's all you knew you absolutely would think that the police officer is 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 you know squashing George Floyd there on the street but there's another video that lasts for 20 minutes or more that shows what happened before and it shows that all the while uh George Floyd is complaining that he can't breathe which is a symptom of uh, fentanyl overdose uh, the police officers just wanted him to sit in the back seat of the squad car, and he wouldn't do it. He said, "No, I want to lie on the street. I got to lie on the street." And I mean, you get a completely different picture. But none of the jurors that I saw uh, in Vardeer had seen that video. They'd only seen the one shot by the passerby that was all over social media.
3: Right. They'd either see that, or at the minimum, they've seen the still image of Officer Shelvin uh, with his knee on the neck of George Floyd but they haven't seen the rest. I mean, George Floyd had three times the lethal limit of fentanyl in his blood. There's also a video from a year or so before where he was pulled over by the police where he had the same complaints. He cried, he was asking for his mother, and he he swallowed drugs, and he was hysterical. That probably will not get in to evidence at trial. There's an argument about it right now. That video will not get in, but the video of the actual act will get in. So it just goes to show, I mean, anytime the juror has seen evidence before they get into the courtroom, it's just, it's impossible for me to believe that they can be completely impartial. So you've got a situation, it's almost impossible to get there. And, you know, the state compounding it, you know, yesterday, Chief Arredondo, the chief of the Minneapolis police department had a press conference where he said, we're going to take back that George Floyd square 38th in Chicago. We're going to take that back. It's not an autonomous zone. And the mayor in response wasn't there at the press conference, mayor Fry said he was aligned with the chief in his viewing of opening up the t- the timeline for reestablishing traffic in that area. And then he said he wanted to maintain a bump out to prevent tires from ever crossing that sacred ground where George Floyd died. Now, you know, we had, I think four people killed in that area last weekend that's unreported, or if it's reported, it's forgotten, but the death of George Floyd is going to be sacred ground the, the Mount Calvary for the Black Lives Matter movement, and we're going to reroute traffic and destroy businesses because of that. Uh, the police, officer, police chief is in an untenable situation with this lack of support by the mayor, and it also leads to not getting fair justice for Derek for, uh, Chauvin.
1: Let's go next to uh, Ron in Minneapolis on Line 2. Ron, you are on the Dennis Prager Show.
4: Yes, thank you, my, my friend. Just out of curiosity, are you from Minneapolis?
1: Uh, I was not born in Minneapolis. I've lived in, in the Minneapolis area for 46 years.
4: Okay, so, yeah, you're very knowledgeable of the area. So my point here, uh, by the way, if if it's just a slight better fair trial chance to move it to, to Duluth or Rochester, they should do it. But anyway, my main point here, what killed South Minneapolis with these riots is our... Young, immature left wing loon and cowardly mayor of Minneapolis. He knew what was coming in the South Minneapolis area. He knew the damage that was boiling you know in the start. He should have called the governor, who was also a left wing loon, but at least request the National guard. If he would have done that on a timely basis, we would still have our precious South Minneapolis Lake Street, East Lake Street area. My friends, I have a lot of friends who, who oh, no, own or you sell businesses. there, restaurants, you name it. It, it. it was the mayor. He should have called in the guard. Your 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 point on that, or your, your response?
1: Well, Ron, there's no doubt that that Minneapolis is one of the worst led cities in America. Now, the mayor, of course, claims that he tried to get the guard, and the governor wouldn't uh, wouldn't call it out. I, they they pointed fingers at each other, and I think both of them are are utterly incompetent. Uh, Let's go real quick before the break to Jim in Minneapolis on line one. Jim, we have literally got 30 seconds to make a quick point.
5: Well, my quick point is, and it's amazing that nobody has mentioned this. I've never heard any discussions about it. So when you look at the pictures of Derek Chauvin with his knee on the neck, on the back of George Floyd's neck, What has never been brought up is Jim. You got to hold through
1: the break. Got to hold through the break, Jim. Welcome back to the Dennis Prager Show. Before the break, we were talking to Jim in Minneapolis. Uh, Jim is still with us. And Jim, you were explaining something about this, about the famous picture of Derek Chauvin kneeling on George Floyd. Why don't you finish that thought real quick?
5: So, what I was going to say is when people look at that picture, why do people assume that 100% of Derek Chauvin's weight was being applied on the knee that was on George Floyd's neck? Why? I mean, we don't know if the majority of his weight was supported on the knee that was on the pavement. The only person that knows how much pressure was applied was Derek Chauvin.
1: All right, thanks, you know, thanks, George? thanks for that call, Jim. And uh, and of course, the autopsy did not find any physical injury in the area of um, of George Floyd's uh, neck, any of those structures. Let's go next to um, John in Tampa, Florida. John's been waiting patiently. John, welcome to the uh, Dennis Prager Show on, on Line Eight. Uh, everybody else, you should
6: have the 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 trial right now in the city that he he allegedly committed the crime in. I mean, they have it right on they have it on tape he, he's on there. What if you shoot somebody and they die from an overdose after you shoot them, should you not be prosecuted?
1: Well, he didn't shoot George Floyd John and and the defenses, oh, he, did, that, but the he, defenses he didn't the defenses he didn't the defense nine is nine the, yeah, and the defense is that kneeling on his neck had absolutely nothing to do with the fact that George Uh Floyd unfortunately Uh died. Thanks for that call, though, John. Uh Let's go to Matthew in Lansing, Michigan, on Line 5. Matthew, welcome to the program.
6: Yeah, it was pretty quick. Um, I wanted to talk about the strategies of the left. For the last six years, I've been working on a book, and I got it published, and I've figured out what they do in this book. Are you there?
1: Yeah, go ahead. Okay, yeah. Don't absolutely. summarize the whole book, though, please.
6: They they reverse the Declaration of Independence and force conformity. They don't want anybody breaking from that conformity. And they'll destroy anybody that gets in their way. They also break Darwin's code. They destroy Darwin's natural code in man, no matter who it is. Could be Kavanaugh, could be Trump. It doesn't matter. They are all about power 100% of the time. In this book that I wrote, I call it The Hidden Code of God because it Makes up the Bible structure too. All the sins are on that side. When you flip the Declaration of Independence upside down, you get all the evil in the world. You get the Hitlers, the Stalins, the Pol Pots, the mass murders,
1: the only good ones. Matthew, I got to agree that you've got a point there. We are going to have to go to a break here in just a moment. Uh, we've been talking about the, uh, the Derek Chauvin uh, trial where they're in the midst of jury selection here in Minneapolis. We've been talking with Howard Rutt. Howard, thanks so much for being on the program.
3: Thanks, John.
1: Thanks for inviting me on. And one last time, I will say that Howard is the author of the book Cardiac Arrest, a terrific book. You can get it at Amazon. We'll be back after these messages.
2: The Dennis Prager Show, live from the Relief Factor Pain-Free Studio.